Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23? And as you do, we're going to dismiss our children to Children's Church. So if you have little kids who are pre-K through third grade, you can meet in the back for Children's Church. Now, before I read the Bible, I want to begin with four words that are the four most terrifying words that anyone can hear from their pastor on a Sunday morning. Are you ready? My watch is broken. Uh, And uh, there is a clock up there that I cannot see. I think the last time that I could see that far was sometime during the George W. Bush administration. Uh, I am old, and so we're just going to have to see how this goes. But we're going to read Luke chapter 23. We're going to start reading in verse 26, and then we're going to read all the way to verse 43. And really the main focus of our passage is going to be verse 34, where Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Here's the reading of God's word. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves. And for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of God. Let's go to him now in prayer. (sighs) Oh Lord our God, when we think about the weight of your words from the cross, when we think about how you in your very last moments on this earth prayed for our forgiveness, 
we are overwhelmed by your goodness and your grace. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak to us through your word, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to the end of our sermon series on the topic of prayer. I hope it's been helpful to you. It certainly has been helpful to me, energizing my prayers as I've thought about who God is and how we are meant to relate to Him in prayer. Since we started this series in the final week of January, we have learned to pray alongside men like Abraham and Jacob and Moses. We've learned to pray with Hannah and David and Daniel. We've learned to pray with Jesus by looking at two of Jesus' most famous, famous prayers, the Lord's Prayer and the High Priestly Prayer. Last week, we learned to pray for the harvest Specifically, that God would raise up workers to go into the world to gather up the lost people of his kingdom. Our prayer is very much that heaven would be a crowded place. And that's what Jesus prays too. Well, today we're going to talk about one of the last prayers that Jesus ever prayed, prayed a prayer that he prayed while dying on the cross. A prayer that he prayed for his executioners. A prayer that he prayed for people who mocked, betrayed, and abandoned him. A prayer that he prayed as a dying man. A prayer that he prayed for dying men. A prayer that he prayed for a thief who had the world's most famous deathbed conversions. The most famous last-minute conversion in the history of last-minute conversions. A prayer that he continues to pray for each and every one of us. A prayer for forgiveness. Verse 34, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Condemn them? Judge them, crucify them. We could certainly understand Jesus praying any of those things. Forgive them? How do we understand the mercy of God? How do we understand Jesus praying for the forgiveness of the very people who were murdering the Son of God? They do not realize that they are killing the one person who can give them everlasting life. So what is forgiveness? What does that look like? How do you know that you have been forgiven? In order to answer some of these questions, we're going to look at the thief on the cross. A man that Phil Riken called the luckiest man in the history of the world. Because for all the hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who were crucified in the Roman Empire, this man, this thief, happened to be crucified on the very cross right next to Jesus. So who was this man? Well, we don't know much about him. We don't even know his name. Was he a thief? Was he a murderer? Was he an insurrectionist? Was he... In his heart, a good person? 
Was he a bad person? Was he a lost person? Was he a found person? Here's what we do know. We know that this man met Jesus on Good Friday. We know he confessed his sins. We know he believed in Jesus. And because of that, we know that he has spent the last 2,000 years with Jesus in paradise. A place where it is not humid at all. A place where summer vacation never ends. A place where every story has a happy ending. A place where no one dies and no one leaves and no one sins forever and ever. Amen. This is a story about guilt. It's a story about grace. It's a story about gratitude. It's a story about redemption. It's a story about second chances. It's a story that challenges everything that we think we know about heaven and the good people and the bad people and who exactly gets to come into the kingdom of God. Is heaven for good people? Is heaven for bad people? Some people? All people? It's not a story about a person who gets what he deserves. Which is important because we need stories like that if we're going to love people the way that Jesus loved people. If we're going to be merciful and gracious and kind and good. This is a story about the first person that Jesus met in heaven. So who was he? How did he get there? And will you meet, meet him there someday? Well, if you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. As we consider the life of this forgiven man, this thief on the cross, we're going to see four things about the dynamic of forgiveness. First, we'll see that this man, this thief on the cross, was a sinful man. He was not a good person by any stretch of the imagination. Second, we'll see that he confessed his sins. He didn't obfuscate, he didn't hide, he didn't dodge. He said the unspoken thing out loud. He confessed his sins to God. He was open and honest about who he was. Third, we'll see that he believed in Jesus. He trusted in Jesus as his Savior and his Lord. And finally, we'll see that he was forgiven. Not temporarily, not momentarily, completely and fully forever forgiven. The thief on the cross was forgiven and you can be forgiven. How does that work? Well, let's take a closer look. Here's the first big idea. The thief on the cross was a sinful man. According to verse 32, he was a criminal. Luke writes, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Luke actually uses that word three times in this passage. He's telling us that this guy, this thief on the cross, was not one of the good guys. Sometimes when we meet people, we think, oh my goodness, this person is so close to the kingdom of God. 
This person is so close to believing. This person is so close to seeing the truth about who God is and what Jesus has done. And Luke is telling us, that's not this guy. Unlike Jesus, he was a guilty man who was being crucified for crimes that he did commit. Now, according to Matthew and Mark's account of the crucifixion, he was a robber, which is why we sometimes refer to him as the thief on the cross. But that same word could also be translated insurrectionist. Our best guess is that he was someone who was trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. He was sort of like a first century member of the PLO or Antifa. He was somebody who was trying to break windows and throw bricks at police cars in order to bring about a revolution in the Roman Empire, to break loose from the Roman government. Now, in any case, whether he was a looter or a rioter or a thief or a murderer or some combination of the things, he was, by his own admission, guilty of the crimes that he was accused of. Verse 41, he says, And we indeed are being condemned or crucified justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. Now, before we go on, I want us to just pause here for a minute. It's worth asking, how much do we have in common with the thief on the cross? How much? Now, you might be reading this story and thinking, well, I don't have anything in common with them. I'm not a thief. I'm not a robber. I'm not a, a member of Antifa. I'm not somebody who's throwing bricks through windows, a rooter, a, a, a looter, or a rioter. I'm not a criminal. I've never been arrested. I've never even gotten detention at school. I'm one of the good people. I'm one of the good guys in this story. Is that really true? If you read the Bible and particularly give attention to the words of Jesus, we see over and over again Jesus teaching his disciples that sin is a matter of the heart. Before sin is a behavior problem, sin is a heart problem. We we sin because we are sinners. The things that flow out of us, the sins that flow out of us, come from inside of us, from inside our hearts. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus encountered a group of very religious people called the Pharisees. Very conservative, very fastidious. They were all about keeping the rules. And so, they would say things like, well, okay, sixth commandment says, thou shalt not murder. I have never committed murder. And Jesus says, if you hate people, you're a murderer. If you have hatred in your heart, you have broken the commandment. And they said, well, hey, we've never committed adultery. And Jesus says, let me see your phone. Let me see your browser history. Let me look inside your mind to see what you've been thinking about. Do you see the problem? See, we think on some level, we're not at all like the thief on the cross. But we are. We sin when we don't do the things that God has told us to do. Feeding the hungry, clothing the poor, standing up to the bullies, visiting the sick people, writing letters to people who are in prison. 
But we also sin when we do the very things that God forbids. We sin when we hate someone that we are supposed to love. We sin when we curse someone that we are supposed to bless. We sin when we dishonor someone that we are supposed to honor and respect. Who is the thief on the cross? It's me. It's you. And until you see that, the gospel will never make sense to you. You will never acknowledge your sin. You will never confess your sin because you'll think, well, there's always somebody worse than me. Compared to that person over there, well, I'm actually doing very well. As they say in the the 12-step programs, the first step is admitting that you have a problem. We are all sinners who desperately need God's grace. But that's not the last step. What do we do once we admit that we have a problem? What do we do once we admit that we are not quite the good people that we would like to believe? What do we do once we see ourselves next to Jesus on that cross? Second big idea, the thief on the cross confessed his sins. Verse 40, but the other man, the thief on the cross, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Do you hear what he's saying? He's confessing his sins. He's saying, We are guilty. We deserve to die. There's only one innocent person up here today, and it's not us. It's Jesus. Confession is saying the quiet part out loud. God, I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need to be forgiven. No spin, no qualifications, no rationalizations, no finger pointing, no blame shifting, no obfuscating. It's saying, here I am, God. I am a sinner. I desperately need your grace. I desperately need to be forgiven. I need you to give me something that I do not deserve. I need you, Lord Jesus, to wash away my sins. I cannot save myself. You, Lord Jesus, are my only hope. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just had an open honest conversation with God about your sins. Have you ever said, God, here I am, warts and all, this is me. No hiding, no religious language, no these and thous and all the things that we do to present ourselves the right way before God. Just here I am. Look at my heart, God. Now, in a sense, We all do that every week at Pinewoods when we worship together. We all confess our sins. We have prayers. We even give you space for silent confession of sin. But there's also a certain sense in which someone else cannot make you confess your sin. Confession is a choice that you have to make. You have to to decide to be honest with God about who you really are, apart from His grace. 
Now, I will say, by way of encouragement, that confession is beautiful. Confession is nourishing and life-giving. Confession is good for your soul. Because confession takes all the burden of sin and shame and worry and brokenness off of your shoulders and puts it on the shoulders of the one person who can actually carry that load, and that's Jesus. And so when you confess your sin, it's not about beating yourself up. It's not saying, oh, woe is me. It's about taking the burden and putting it where it belongs, on the shoulders of Jesus. That's what it is. And that's what we do when we confess our sins. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this. He said, come to me who labor heavy lady, rest gloriously complete. Maybe today is the day where you say the quiet part out loud. Jesus, I am not good enough. I judge other people. I look down on other people. But the problem of the world is not out there. The problem of the world is in here. It's in me. What do we do next? Third big idea. The thief on the cross, having acknowledged his sin, having confessed his sin, believed in Jesus. Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, what exactly did the thief on the cross believe about Jesus? What do we need to believe about Jesus in order to be forgiven? Do we need a theology degree? Do we need to know what happened at the Council of Nicaea? Do we need to know fully the mysteries of the Trinity and the hypostatic union and all the complexities of doctrine? Well, my guess is that the thief on the cross didn't know any of those things. My guess is that he would not have been able to pass an exam in Bible 101, and yet he was forgiven. Why? He was forgiven because he believed. He believed that Jesus was his Savior. The name Jesus means Savior. And the word that we translate remember is actually a covenantal word. In the Bible, remembering something is not the same thing as recollecting something. Like sometimes I can't remember where I put my car keys. It's not that kind of remembering. It's not like God is saying, oh yeah, I remember God never forgets, so that's not what it is. It's a covenantal word. Whenever God remembers someone, he blesses that person with life and hope and freedom and forgiveness. Now, you might be wondering, what kind of person does God remember? The good people? The people who have it all figured out? Just this week, I've been going to all sorts of graduation ceremonies and uh, awards banquets. It's kind of that season of the school year. And they always recognize the people who got the best grades, the people who were the MVP on the team, the people who were the most improved. The recognition comes and the remembrance comes from those who have achieved. Is that how God works? No, it is not. God remembers people like Noah. Go back and read the story of Noah. 
God remembers this man who had the most dysfunctional family of anyone in the Bible. Okay, go read the story. It's a mess. God remembers people like Rachel. She wanted a son. She wanted to belong. She wanted to be part of the family of God. And God remembered her. God remembered the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt, doing backbreaking work day after day after day, making bricks without straw. They called out to God, and God remembered them and set them free so that they might worship Him in the glory of who He was. He remembers people like the thief on the cross, and He remembers people like you and like me. He's our Savior. He's our hope. He's our joy. Now, in saying that, He may not change your immediate circumstances. The thief on the cross who was dying on the cross did not come down from the cross. Essentially, that was what the other thief wanted to happen. He says, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, if you're the king, we want to come down from the cross. Jesus wouldn't do that, and so the man was no longer interested in Jesus. He doesn't always change our circumstances, but he changes our heart. He changes our destiny. He will remember you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you call out to Jesus, remember me, he will remember you and you will be saved. Now, what else did the thief believe? Not only did he believe that Jesus was his Savior, he believed that Jesus was his Lord. He said, Jesus, remember me where? When you come into your kingdom. Not just the kingdom, your kingdom. He's saying, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the Messiah. You are my King. Is he your Lord? Is he your Messiah? Is he your King? Again, I think a lot of people try to use Jesus to get something else, what they really want in life. I think that that's, again, what the first thief was trying to do. He says, hey, bring me down, Jesus. Jesus says, no. He says, all right, I'm done with Jesus. And I think we do that sometimes too, don't we? Something terrible happens in life. We have a crisis in our family, and we think, I'm done with this. I've been obedient. I've been faithful. I've been following you, Jesus. How can this happen to me? See, oftentimes I think we, we want Jesus to give us something more than Jesus, something besides Jesus, something in addition to Jesus, when the first thief who believed said, all I want is Jesus. All I want is you. Maybe you've come this morning thinking, okay, I'm in church, I'm praying, I'm singing, I'm listening. Jesus, I need a better job. Help me find a better job. Maybe you've come this morning and you think, Jesus, I need you to fix my marriage. Some of y'all have finals next week. You're thinking, okay, God, I just need you to get me through this week. I need you to get me through finals. If ever I love thee, Jesus, it's now, okay? I need your help. Christians don't think that way. A Christian is someone who says, Jesus, I don't want to use you. I want you to use me. 
I want to go wherever you tell me to go. And I want to do whatever you're calling me to do, trusting that you will equip me and empower me to do all of the good work that you have called me to do. That's what prayer is. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Last big idea. We'll close with this. The thief on the cross, having acknowledged his sin, confessed his sin, having believed in Jesus, was forgiven. Verse 43, And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So what what does forgiveness look like? How do we know that we've actually been forgiven? Well, let's just kind of walk through this word by word. Truly, truly, this man was forgiven truly, assuredly. He didn't say, well, maybe you'll be with me in paradise. You know, I'll go over your resume. I'll see what you've done. Uh, Have you been a regular church attender? Uh, Do you tithe? Uh, Have you been active in sort of extracurricular activities? Were you baptized? Who'd you vote for in the last election? That's not how it works. When Jesus says, you are forgiven, then you are forgiven. And you can believe it or you cannot believe it, but it is true. And we know this because Jesus died on the cross, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead in victory over death and over hell, and so we can rely on what he says as being true. You can count on your forgiveness because it's not about what you do for Jesus, it's about what Jesus has done for you. Today, Jesus forgives us immediately. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. The moment you confess your sins and believe in Jesus, you are forgiven that day. If you are a Christian, the moment you die, you will immediately go to be with the Lord in paradise. There's no delay. There's no time of testing. There's no purgatory. There's no more work that you have to do today. Jesus gives us immediate forgiveness. You. Jesus forgives us personally. Today, you will be with me in paradise. When we go to heaven, we retain our personhood. When we die, it's not like a drop of water returning to the ocean. We don't cease to be ourselves in heaven. We will recognize one another. We're going to meet the thief on the cross. You're going to see him face to face and be able to ask him questions. Hey, what's your name? The Bible doesn't mention his name. Who are you? Tell me about how it was that you came to faith in Jesus Christ while dying on that cross. We'll know because heaven and forgiveness is personal with me. When Jesus forgives us, he forgives us relationally. Forgiveness makes us part of the family of faith, the family of of God, the body of Christ, the church. You can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ if you are forgiven. You can pray to him any time of every day, 
confident that he will answer your prayers because of Jesus. You can know him and you can be known by him forever. Paradise. Jesus forgives us permanently. Permanently. One of the things that's so striking about the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was a a paradise, is that it was a place of testing. God put a tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he told Adam and Eve, you can eat from any other tree in the garden except this one tree. If you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day that you do it, then you shall surely die. Adam and Eve failed the test, they ate the forbidden fruit, and because of that, they weren't allowed to eat from the tree of life and live forever. That's why God sent them out of the garden, east of Eden. He put angels with flaming swords, because if they would have eaten the tree of life, they would have lived forever in a state of brokenness and fallenness. They would have essentially condemned themselves to hell. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. When John talks about paradise in the book of Revelation, we see many of the same things that are present in the Garden of Eden. We see the tree of life. We see the garden. Here's what we don't see. We don't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because there are no more tests. And why are there no more tests? Because Jesus passed the test. Jesus, who Paul calls our second Adam, did what the first Adam failed to do. He kept the law of God perfectly. And not only did he keep the law of God perfectly, he died on the cross as a lawbreaker in our place so that we might receive the glories of the paradise of God. When Jesus says, it is finished, he meant it. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We sometimes like to make it harder than that, but it really isn't. It is gloriously simple. Like the thief on the cross, we are sinners, every single one of us. Like the thief on the cross, we must confess our sins, not only to God, but also to one another. That's so crucial. Like the thief on the cross, we must believe in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And if we do, like the thief on the cross, we will be forgiven. Fully and forever forgiven. That's Jesus' prayer for you. Father, forgive them. He will. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord and our God, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus. We come to you as people who are sinners. We sin in so many ways. And the longer that we follow you, Lord God, the more keenly aware we are of the many, many ways that the the sin in our hearts goes all the way to the bottom. Oh, forgive us, Lord God. Change our lives and make us new. Welcome us into the paradise of the kingdom of God. 
And may we be your ambassadors, welcoming others into the same paradise through Jesus.